Okay, I think uh, it's three minutes past four o'clock. Um, we'll get started here. We're also approaching almost 100 participants, which is wonderful to see. So uh, uh, welcome uh, to the second meeting uh, of the Fairbank Center's uh, Modern China Lecture Series. My name is uh, Arun Abdosh. I teach modern Chinese history here in the, in the, history, uh, in the history department at Harvard here. Uh, before I introduce our speaker, uh, I wanted to let you know about our two upcoming talks, just so you can mark your calendars. Uh, on October 27th, two weeks from now, uh, we'll welcome uh, Wang Feixian from IU Bloomington, uh, who will deliver a talk titled, uh, Everybody Loves Qianlong, Vernacular Fantasies, Cultural Consumption, and the Prosperous Age in Post-Imperial China. And two weeks after that, on November 10th, uh, we will welcome Kobel Meiskins from the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, and he'll deliver a talk titled, uh, Mao's Massive Military Industrial Campaign to Defend Cold War China. I think uh, both announcements are already up. So if you Google their names in the Fairbank Center, you should be able to find the details, but we will be making formal, formal announcements in the coming, coming days. So please look out for them uh, and please mark your calendars. October 27th and November 10th, both are Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Um, but today I'm delighted to welcome uh, Professor Gina Ann Tan, who will be delivering a talk entitled Dialect and the Making of Modern China from Republican Revolutionaries to Hong Kong Protesters. Uh, Gina is a historian of modern China. Her specialization is on the construction of collective identity in modern China, so things like national belonging, ethnicity, and race. Uh, she received a PhD from Stanford in 2016 and is currently an assistant professor at Trinity University in Texas. She is the author of uh, Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960, which was published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press, so many congratulations uh, for that. She's now working on a global history of uh, Chinese restaurateurs and the making of Pan-Asian cuisine in the 20th century, which sounds uh, quite exciting, quite delicious actually. A uh, few quick words about format. Uh, so Gina will speak for about 30 to 35 minutes, uh, and then we'll have Q&A for roughly the same length of time. Uh, and we'll plan to finish by about 5.15 to 5.30, depending on how the conversation goes. Uh, if you have questions, I would encourage you to use the Q&A section and type them up. You're free to start typing them up uh, during the course of the talk, and I'll try and get to them, get to as many of them uh, in the Q&A session. Uh, before typing, I would request you identify yourself, um, uh, but I, at the same time, please note that the webinar is being recorded, so if you would prefer to stay anonymous, that's of course perfectly fine as well. Okay, uh, so uh, without further ado, let me hand things over to Professor Tam. Okay, um, thank you so much, Arnab. Thank you, um, thank you for inviting me to do this talk. Um, thank you to the Fairbank Center for, for making this happen. Um, and thank you to all of you for spending your Tuesday afternoon here um, listening to me talk about my work. I'm really, really excited to share it with you. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, share my screen, which should be possible, I think, um, hopefully. Give it a second. New world of tech. Um, let's see. Okay. Wonderful. Um, okay. So, um, <laughs> here we go. Um, as Adana mentioned, um, I'm going to talk a little bit today, uh, about my, uh, about my new book called um, Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960. Um, and to start us off, I want to start with a story, um, from a few years ago from the city of Hong Kong. Uh, let's see if I can get this to work. There we go. Uh, in 2016, the Hong Kong Department of Education sent out a packet of supporting reference materials for instructors teaching the Chinese national language Mandarin to school children in the special administrative region. 
Uh, unexpectedly, this unassuming assemblage of short articles about language pedagogy made headlines across uh, Hong Kong. And the reason was because one of the articles, among many, made the argument that Cantonese, the Chinese language most frequently spoken in the city of Hong Kong, could not be considered a mother tongue. So now the argument centered on the linguistic categorization of Cantonese. Uh, the author, a university consultant from mainland China, argued that mother tongues are languages and its speakers belong to one ethnic group. Cantonese speakers are Han Chinese, he continued, and there's only one language that could represent the Han ethnicity, which is Mandarin, or in the PRC, we'd call it Putonghua, um, and in Taiwan, we'd call it Guoyu, right? Cantonese, on the other hand, he called a Fangyan, um, a term that if we sort of broke it apart, right, so um, like Fang means place and Yan means language, so language of place. Um, it is one of dozens, if not hundreds, spoken throughout China, as we can see broadly from this map here, which shows uh, broad Fangyan regions in China. But I don't even think that this actually captures linguistic diversity, uh, because within each of these Fangyan regions, there's a lot of diversity as well, which I think this map kind of highlights. Now in English, Fangyan are most commonly translated as dialects, right? That's usually, that's the usual English translation. And this is certainly how the art author of this article saw it. So for men like this university consultant, Fangyan, like dialects, are variants of a Chinese language, whereas Putonghua, defined as the common language of the Chinese people, is its standard representative. So as China's representative language, he argued, it alone can be considered a mother tongue. Now, this claim elicited a fierce backlash in Hong Kong as Hong Kong journalists, everyday citizens, even the chief executive, uh, declared that Cantonese was their mother tongue, right? Um, we even get signs like mothers speak Cantonese, mother tongue, right? Um, the consultant who wrote this, but like the consultant who wrote this article, the refutations that they, that they articulated to sort of debunk this idea focused also on the proper linguistic categorization of Cantonese. Take, for instance, one detractor, a graphic artist who goes by Otto, and he's the author of several books on Cantonese idioms that frequently feature an adorable character, primary school chicken. Oh, I went one too far. There we go. <laughs> um, so primary school chicken, right? So here, Otto's chicken stands in front of a sketched out chalkboard. Uh, this is one of four slides here um, where he's teaching his readers the objective definitions of language and dialect, right? Um, and he does use the term dialect. He translates Fangyan as dialect. Now he argues dialects are mutually intelligible with both its core language and other related dialects. Cantonese, on the other hand, is not mutually intelligible with Putonghua. Uh, similarly, dialects have much of their grammar and syntax in common with the language that they are supposedly a variant of, whereas Cantonese has its own grammatical patterns and vocabulary. Um, dialects are informal, primary school chicken tells us, and they don't have a writing system, whereas you can write Cantonese as this slide here, as one of a series is meant to show. So by this definition, primary school chicken is arguing here, the relationship between Cantonese and Mandarin is akin to the relationship between, for example, French and Portuguese, which are similar languages to be sure, but they are first and foremost languages. Now, it's interesting that the, the debate over the technical definition of a language and a dialect would result in such fierce outrage. And the reason, I believe, is because the stakes of this debate extend, be extend far beyond such technicalities. By calling something a language or a dialect, we bestow upon it significances and limitations that can um, extend far beyond the narrow definition of the category itself. Calling Putonghua a national standard and Fangyan variants implies that Putonghua can represent China in a way that Fangyan cannot, any Fangyan cannot. And this isn't just me saying this, it's really easy to find rhetoric that implies this hierarchy. For instance, a frequently used textbook on the history of language in China um, 
and that the author writes that Putonghua is the only language that allows the Chinese nation to be preserved, develop, and progress. Um, I collected a lot of newspaper articles that have school children reciting, we are Chinese, we therefore speak Putonghua. Um, even this image here out of the city of Shanghai, um, this girl is holding a sign that says, promulgate Putonghua, build together the China dream. Now, the emotional stakes of this debate, I think, are also captured in another, so the final image that Otto drew here um, about this debate, um, which is here. It's a simple drawing of his childlike chicken, uh, surrounded by soft silhouettes of horses and hearts and cats and flowers. And in it, the chicken declares, Cantonese is my mother tongue. Now, this is a really sentimental image, but that sentimentality disguises a strident defensiveness. Otto is arguing against a person seeking to devalue his native language and in so doing, devalue the significance of his own identity. Otto's chicken, powerfully declaring what his mother tongue is, seems to understand that the stakes of Cantonese being a mere dialect means that he himself could also be considered just a variant of a national standard. This episode encapsulates the core argument of my book. Put simply, my book argues that fangyan are central to understanding how Chinese national identity emerged and formed in China from the end of the 19th century through the 1960s. I argue that fangyan's significance can be detected throughout this period in two interlocking narratives. On the one hand, there were those who argued that Chinese identity needed to have a sole standard linguistic representative. People who argued this believed that Fangyan or called Fangyan subsidiaries, non-standards, some even called them obstacles to an idealized national identity. On the other hand, however, there were opposing groups who revered Fangyan as having a historical and emotional connection to the nation that was more authentic than that of the Chinese national language. Fangyan for these groups were pieces of historic heritage and tools for expressing authentic emotions and subjectivities. These narratives each tell their own story about Chinese nationalism as a whole. The former tells us how homogenization subsumes and discredits visions of the Chinese nation that run counter to the standard. The latter emphasizes the persistence of a bottom-up declaration that national culture, oh, went too far, uh, that national culture can be flexible and heterogeneous. When taken together, however, we see that these two narratives informed and shaped one another and in the process, collective identity as a whole. I thus propose in my book that we study these two narratives not as simply coexisting, but as mutually co-constructive. In other words, I contend that they evolved and shaped one another throughout the 20th century, and more importantly, that it's through these interactions, the interactions of these narratives, rather than focusing on one narrative of the other, that we can best understand national identity in 20th century China. Now, in this talk, I'd like to highlight just a few snapshots, not sort of a full retelling of my book, but just a few snapshots where we can see these two narratives, one promoting a homogenous Chinese identity, the other promoting a more heterogeneous one, come into sort of like directly speak to one another. Um, so my first, my first snapshot will focus on arguments concerning the role of Fangyan in the construction of the Chinese national language. In particular, I contend that the arguments over the pronunciation of a standard Chinese language bring into sharp relief deep entrenched disagreements about how language should represent a national culture, disagreements that would resonate through the rest of the century. Moving from politics in the early Republican period to the academy, the second snapshot will look at the emergence of the intertwined fields of folk song studies and dialectology after the 1919 May 4th movement. This section will argue that these two disciplines, folk song studies and dialectology, suggested two distinct roles for Fangyan in China's national reinvention. 
I'll then jump to the height of the Maoist period, exploring the effects of the 1958 Great Leap Forward on language reform. During this period, official rhetoric tied speaking Putonghua to revolutionary fervor, while relegating Fangyan to being remnants of, a, of, a, of the past, sometimes remnants of like a backwards past. Yet the radical nature of the rhetoric that came out of this policy had unintended consequences. Not only were these proclamations about Puto, speaking Putonghua uh, means doing revolution limited in their efficacy as Fangyan continued to serve as languages of everyday life, but the revolutionary rhetoric politicized language in an unprecedented way, granting Fangyan a connotation sometimes of political subversiveness. The final snapshot will look at the legacies of these narratives today, um, focusing just a tiny bit on the, uh, the last year's protests in Hong Kong. Okay, let's start in the year 1913. The Republic of China, barely two years old, was struggling to get its bearings. The Republic had replaced a 300-year-old dynasty, which had slowly crumbled in the face of domestic turmoil and multiple defeats in foreign wars. As revolutionaries turned state builders struggled to take a Chinese nation from dream to reality, they hotly debated what it was that actually made nations powerful. On the topic of language, many of them sort of agreed and converged on one narrative, which is that the absence of a unified national language signaled a nation's vulnerability and potential collapse. Now, the brand new Min Republic's Ministry of Education took this seriously. And in February of 1913, they called in several dozen delegates to participate in a conference to determine the standard pronunciation of a Chinese national language. Now I start with this meeting because it's one of the most referred to moments in the history of Chinese language reform. I think as anybody knows when you start doing research you'll have people start to tell you sort of what they know about it and you'll get sort of common narratives about this and, and one of the most common things people like to tell me about this research project is about this conference. It comes up a lot, right? Um, partly because it's the source of a lot of myths. Uh, people from Guangzhou, where I did some of my archival work, for instance, love to tell me or love to lament that their own mother tongue lost the status of national language by only a handful of votes. Sometimes it's like, by two votes, yeah. Um, perhaps the most persistent part of this meeting's lore is that it was the moment where Beijing, the capital, won, quote unquote, the battle to become the national language. Now, there's some truth to these stories, right? There was something akin to sort of people coming together and, and um, trying to come to a consensus on something. I don't know if vote is the right word, but something like that, right? And eventually, though years after this conference, Beijing's language would be chosen to serve as the basis of the national language. But the actual narrative of how Beijing, you know, again, to use this quotes, one is far more complex than this retelling suggests. Rather, I show that the history of this conference shows us that in the early years of the Chinese Republic, a lot of people were less interested in asking which Fangyan do we choose to be the standard, and instead they were more interested in asking what does it mean for a language to represent a nation? Now, one of the men who uh, one of the men during this period who articulated this thinking really clearly was this man, Zhang Binling. Uh, Zhang is something of an enigma to contemporary scholars. Um, he's not really conservative, he's not really a reformer, and he's not really a radical, but somehow he's kind of all three, right? Um, among the reasons, however, that he was so famous was because he popularized the idea that China's new nation had to be of and for ethnic Han Chinese people, not the Manchurian ruling class of China's Qing dynasty, who he very much portrayed as racially inferior. Okay? Uh, one of the places he forcefully argued this was in this work, New Dialect, or Xin Fangyan. Um, published in 1907, it was um, from 1907 to 1910, sort of over the course of a few years, it was a collection of articles meant to show the origins of a Chinese language by tracing the etymology of several hundred um, phrases, words, sort of compounds back 
a couple of thousand years. But Zhang's real goal here, as he sort of articulates, is that he wanted to prove that all Fangyan had a shared core. Um, that he, like to, and this is sort of my metaphor, but I, I think it works, that they were somehow like time capsules within which lay a unified Han Chinese past. Relatedly, he sought to prove his contention that while all Fangyan had a connection to this shared core, there were some that preserved that shared core better than others. And this work directly informed Zhang's prescriptions for a Chinese national language. Okay. Um, he believed that it should be a newly constructed language that embodied the historical pith of the country's diverse Fangyan. Such a construction, of course, needed a base language upon which it would be built. And guided by his anti-Manchu politics, he opposed Beijing Fangyan as that base, arguing that Northern Fangyan were no longer purely Chinese, that they had been contaminated by centuries of contact with Northern non-Han groups. Instead, he suggested that the Chinese national language be based loosely off of the language spoken in the center of China, which he thought sort of epitomized what he called the language of the states of Chu and Han. Now, after 1911, proposals like Zhang seemed quite attuned to the needs of the new nation, as many saw the capital as too closely tied to the fallen Qing dynasty. His ideas attracted prominent supporters, including many members of that February 1913 conference. And after a rather contentious meeting, they eventually came up with a language that was in some ways sort of like at least echoes Zhang's ideas. It was a language that was 80 to 90 percent similar to the phonology of Beijing, so that's not really Zhang's ideas, right? But it was still a constructed language with the remaining 10 to 20 percent of its phonology comprised of characteristics taken from other Fangyan. In particular, um, one that members of this conference really pushed was the um, inclusion of a stop ending, um, or in Chinese we called it the Rusheng, right, which is more common in southern languages than northern ones. So I want to draw attention to this episode because it shows that many of the first constructors of the Chinese national language believed that no one Fangyan in particular had the ability to represent the nation in its entirety. Rather, a language that at once represented the nation's present while also embodying its shared ethnic past had to be an amalgam that they themselves either constructed or reconstructed, depending on sort of who you're asking. And this is why Fangyan were so important, because these men's visions of the national standard was one that represented the diverse Han ethno-racial identity in its entirety. It had to account for all of China's Fangyan. Fangyan were not branches or subsidiary versions of a monolithic Chineseness. They were rather pieces of a puzzle without which the full picture of the Chinese nation remained woefully incomplete. And so in 1913, we have our first Chinese national language, a new invention for a new nation. But after a few years, this 1913 national language, seemingly born of compromise, pleased few people. Those who had been tasked with the practical work of promulgating it saw its shortcomings, casting doubt on the feasibility of enforcing a language that had very few, if any, native speakers. Articles mocked it as blue-green Mandarin, neither donkey nor horse. And even those who really believed in this bold experiment in language creation began to, over sort of the course of the 1910s, doubt its practicality. Take, for instance, this man, Zhao Yuanren, the father of Chinese linguistics, and we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. So Zhao was um, a graduate of Cornell and Harvard, and he was so committed to this hybridized national language that he, had re he made a recording of it in 1921. But by 1924, um, in letters, and he wrote like a green book to his friends and families, um, where he quietly sort of said that the national language should be pure Beijing Fangyan. And this led him in 1925 to join several other reformers to formally propose Beijing's language as the national standard. 
Later in life, he explained that while he still thought, part of him thought this was possible, right, but that ultimately he had decided that it wasn't going to succeed because it was impossible to promulgate. Reflecting on this experience, he laughed, for 13 years I was the sole speaker of this idiolect meant to be the national language of four, five, or six hundred million speakers. And so, in 1925, the language of Beijing was made the national language and the dream of this hybrid national language sort of faded away. Nonetheless, I tell the story to highlight that for a couple of decades, one of the most prominent visions of the Chinese national language was an invented one that encapsulated China's shared cultural core. And once reformers abandoned their idealized language in favor of simply making Beijing's language their national, sort of the national pronunciation, the unrealized dreams of earlier proposals did not simply disappear. These dreams reemerged in new contexts, repurposed to advance Fangyan as a more historic and pure cultural representative of the Chinese nation. And they would reemerge quite quickly. In 1919, six years after the first Chinese national language had been determined and six years before it would be replaced, uh, the country erupted into cultural revolution. The May 4th movement, a protest against Japan's acquisition of Germany's colonies in China, dovetailed with ongoing calls from educated elites for a complete upheaval of China's core cultural institutions and intellectual frameworks. In the midst of this movement, academics inspired by May 4th praise for scientific inquiry began to eagerly develop new use of university programs meant to create modern empirical knowledge about the country, its landscape, and its people. Two of these fields of study in particular, folk song studies and dialectology, were pivotal for reimagining the importance of Fangyan in China's national reinvention. I just want to take a moment to talk about both. Uh, let's begin with the folk song collection movement, first imagined by this man, Liu Banong, um, or Liu Fu. Born in Jiangsu, Liu discovered a passion for literature at an early age. He spent his days reading popular fiction, translating the mysteries of Sherlock Holmes, and composing poetry. Like a growing number of intellectuals in China's cities, Liu saw China's outdated language as, he saw it as outdated, and he saw that out, the fact that it was outdated as emblematic of national backwardness. And then he maintained that the country's best artistic expressions existed beyond elite written traditions. In particular, he talked about what he called low-grade fiction, inspired by the everyday artistic productions of China's non-elite. Um, Liu's enchantment with folk culture was matched by that of this man, Zhou Zoran, who would eventually help Liu co-found his movement. Zhou traveled to Japan to study in 1906, where he translated Greek mythology, studied Japanese ghost stories, um, and jotted down saucy jokes from rural towns in China. Um, he also wrote essays analyzing these tales and anecdotes, framing his analysis with ethnographic theory from Europe and the United States. What brought these two men together, one focused on low-grade literature, the other on ethnography, was they both felt strongly that folk songs were critical to the making of a new Chinese national culture in keeping with sort of the May 4th ideas. Their passion led them in 1922 to found a publication called Folk Songs Weekly, dedicated to collecting and publishing folk songs from across China. In its pages, they explained how folk songs checked all the boxes of a newly defined modern Chinese culture. Folk songs were vernacular, made for and consumed by the masses. They violated the strict rules of elite poetry rather than imitating those, those rules. But perhaps most importantly, they represented the ineffable authenticity of everyday life. Right? Um, and you'll hear sort of contributors to this, to this periodical talk about how they're spontaneous and they're emotional and there's something very raw and real about them. Um, so they were, in a word, what the Chinese citizenry, what the people actually authentically sounded like. And relevant to this lecture, um, all, if not almost all of them, so the contributors said, you know, would often say like all of them, were sung in Fangyan. 
This had an important implication for the meaning of what feng yan were in China. If folk songs were what the Chinese citizenry authentically sounded like, then feng yan was the medium through which that authenticity was expressed. On the pages of Folk Songs Weekly, several contributors began to argue that Fangyan were such a critical part of understanding China's literature, history, and language that they needed to have their own discipline. But many of those dedicated to this discipline had a very specific image of what that discipline would look like. In particular, they thought it needed to be informed by the methodologies of comparative linguistics. As Professor of English Lin Yutang explained in 1925, there should be no confusion as to the definition of fangyan. Language families are divided into yuyan, languages, and he provided that translation himself, right? The rest of this is in Chinese, but the ones in brackets were English that he provided himself. And within each language, there are divisions of fangyan or dialects. We ought to declare that when we speak of fangyan today, that we are using it with the meaning from modern linguistics. Now, what Lin is saying here is that any study of Chinese fangyan needed to graft onto the models prescribed by scholars of linguistics in Europe and the United States. And that meant that their methodologies needed to presume that Chinese languages related to one another something like this, right? Um, this is a 19th century model, but I think it visually really captures um, what they're sort of looking at here. Um, and so you'll notice that as Lin explained, right, like, um, language families turn into languages and stemming from languages are dialects. So this also is dialect, 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 right? Um, and so essentially dialects stem from or evolve from languages. And for Lin, the only proper way to study Fangyan was to treat them as variants of a larger language, that even that they evolve from this larger language. Now a research model to study Fangyan as though they were dialects was first developed and executed by the aforementioned Zhao Yunren. After working on China's language reform in the 1920s, he published China's first full-length Fangyan survey titled Study on the Modern Wu Dialect in 1928. For his study, he asked representatives from 32 different localities in the Jiangnan area near Shanghai um, to pronounce a list of over 3,000 characters. Using wax cylinder phonographs to record sounds, he isolated each character's initial or that beginning consonant, the final, the subsequent vowel or vowel consonant combination, right, and the tone or the intonation with which it is spoken. Zhao then arranged his data into comparative charts that juxtaposed the relative pronunciation of each phoneme with the same phoneme from other surveyed areas. Now, Zhao fashioned himself a scientist, and he believed that any scientific methodology meant collecting quantifiable data sets, relying upon empirical observation, and using replicable methodologies. And Zhao's model here fit the bill. Since his phonological data was derived from a predetermined set of characters, Zhao could compare the phonology of several different fangyan side by side. So here's sort of a, a breakdown that big giant chart a little bit, right? Um, these charts create a unified field of comparison whereby, whereby the distance among and between fangyan could be measured based upon how many of these initials and finals differed from one another and in what way. Yet in order to be sort of truly objective in this comparison, Zhao needed a constant or like a reference point to which to compare his data. He gave a bunch of them, which, um, which you can see up here. Uh, one of the ones that I find really fascinating is that he created what he called sort of like, he explained, um, it's like, it says contemporary Wu Fangyan phonology, um, but he explains in his introduction that this is kind of like, it's basically an amalgamation of all of these phonetic systems that, of the places that he's studying um, into one abstract system, right? So that's sort of how he explains it. But he also includes two others. He includes ancient phonetics, which are based on reconstructions of ancient Chinese, um, and the phonology of the national language. 
Now, Zhao chose these constants to both contextualize all his data and to provide a reference point for his readers. But paired with the model of linguistic taxonomies, the use of constants, right, the use of reference languages, has a hierarchical implication. Their use rested on the assumption that his surveyed fangyan existed on a lower taxonomic plane, ultimately made legible or made comprehensible through the existence of these other reference languages. And after 1930, the language that scholars used most often, not exclusively, they use, they use ancient phonetics quite often as well, but it's very common to use the phonology of the national language, right? So this included Zhao. Um, this is a chart from uh, his survey of Zhongxiang fangyan um, where on the left, right, is Zhongxiang um, Fangyan, whereas on the right, um, you can see these same initials in the phonology of the national language. Okay. So with little explanation, therefore, Zhao and his colleagues made the phonology of the national language their constant. And this, I argue, had important consequences. Its use as a constant, perhaps unintentionally, like I don't think that this is, this is something that they, they, they like directly articulated, um, but it was nonetheless powerful that it helped to cinch the notion that China's national language, arguably a Fangyan, right, had not just a unique political status, but had a unique scientific status. In a methodology where Fangyan were all compared to the national phonology, it was granted the same status as these other sort of linguistic root constants, thus like sort of um, indirectly, right, occupying this higher rung on an imagined hierarchy. Now I bring up these two disciplines because they respectively saw Fangyan as embodying two unique qualities, authentic and of subsidiary. For members of the folk song collection movement like Liu Banong and Zhou Zuoran, it was Fangyan's embodiment of authentic emotion that made them so valuable. For linguists like Zhao Yuanren, committed to forging a field of Chinese dialectology on a groundwork of scientific principles, Fangyan were data that could be organized on hierarchical, organized on like sort of taxonomic models that could prove Fangyan's subordination to this, this, this image of a Chinese language. And while it is difficult to know how much academic work actually matters to the general public, I argue that these understandings for Fangyan filtered down. They filtered down into everyday stories people tell, into entertainment, and most importantly, into education. And that is to me made clear if we move ahead a couple of decades to the height of the Maoist period. Now, after the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party uh, wasted little time launching their new language policy. In November of that year, uh, the same year, 1949, uh, they launched an Association of Language Reform in China, which worked tirelessly to standardize the pronunciation, script composition, and romanization system of a Chinese national language. They outlined and announced this retinue of language reform in the 1950s, which included a scaffolded approach to simplifying Chinese characters, the romanization Han Yu Pinyin, and a standardized oral language called Putonghua, which is defined like this. Beijing's pronunciation as standard pronunciation, Northern dialect as base dialect, and modern vernacular literature as standard structure, vocabulary, and grammar. Now, there's a notable amount of continuity between these official PRC standards and language policies before 1949, right? We have romanization systems before 1949. Um, like, the, like a lot of the simplified character schemas um, have precedent in earlier sort of like common simplified characters. Um, and that really, if we sort of look at this, uh, Putonghua differs more from the national language of the Republic of China in its definition than in its phonology. Um, and despite the fact that the PRC's vision of the Chinese nation was one built on and strengthened through Marxist-Leninist principles, the tension we saw before 1949 between pushing for one national language as representative and celebrating linguistic diversity also characterized the early years of the PRC. And indeed, for the PRC's first decade or so, 
The two, these two narratives coexisted side by side. Though multiple arms of the CCP's bureaucracy worked hard to promote Putonghua as the nation's common language, in particular in the classroom, right? um, official language instructed new teachers to emphasize that Putonghua promulgation was not meant to be at Fangyan's expense. At the same time, Fangyan was celebrated in other areas of official life. One example I talk about in the book is theater, right, where um, traveling drama troops um, performed revolutionary plays in local languages. There was even sort of an exhibition of these plays in Beijing. Um, so there was support for this, right, um, the idea that these plays should be in local languages. Um, but official tolerance for this coexistence really shifted in official rhetoric in 1958. That year was the rollout of the Great Leap Forward, a sweeping economic policy meant to demonstrate people's superhuman endeavors in economic production and cultural rejuvenation. The Great Leap Forward spirit was first and foremost applied to grain and steel production, with the central government calling upon its citizens to double or quadruple grain production or catch up with Britain in terms of steel production and these kinds of goals. But the movement's rhetoric imbued almost all areas of life, including national language promulgation. Uh, for instance, there was one of the ways that we get a lot of this rhetoric is that there were a lot of these events called Teaching Putonghua Achievement Exhibitions. Um, so a lot of them were in Shanghai, but uh, they were kind of all over the country. Um, and they were, there were local ones and national ones that were held annually. Um, but they were meant to showcase successes in language promulgation. So a speech at one of them exclaimed, there are those who believe when the Liberation Army is at our defense, can it be considered doing revolution? Or they say that developing oil fields is doing revolution. But as for promulgating Putonghua for the revolution, is it placing its value too high? It's not. In this age of our great revolution, in this country of our great revolution, on every front, whether it's a large-scale movement or everyday activities, it is all part of revolutionary work. So the Great Leap Forward rhetoric, in other words, equated speaking Putonghua with other nation building efforts like developing oil fields or even winning wars. What goes unstated, however, is that if speaking Putonghua both represented and facilitated doing revolution, within the fervor of the Great Leap Forward, then not speaking, Putonghua, not speaking the national language could potentially amount to not supporting the revolution's goals. Uh, these grand pronouncements and official rhetoric painted the issue as black and white, right? Speak the national language and join the revolution, and then what goes unstated is if you don't, then you don't. Sometimes that wasn't unstated, right? Um, sometimes that was very clearly articulated. Um, but if these policies were actually applied like their rhetoric suggested and they were meeting their goals here that were that were articulated in these official documents, um, Putonghua would, I, like, theoretically be universally, maybe even sort of like most commonly spoken throughout China, um, which um, we know isn't true, right? Um, or singularly spoken throughout China, which, which we know is not true. Um, in a lot of areas of China, Putonghua can sometimes be rare. Um, and in big cities like Guangzhou and Shanghai, the sounds in the streets are often a cacophony of multiple Fangyan, Putonghua, English, um, and a code switching mixture of all of them. Right? Um, and a lot of things that are kind of in between. Uh, these easily observable realities remind us that the implementation of language reform nearly half a century ago, um, that there's a significant gap between rhetoric and practice. So if we are to pre presume that the present can tell us something about the past, how do we explain this gap? Um, I think we can start by talking about where Fangyan likely continued to be spoken through the, like, through the, through, um, the PRC under Mao. First, Fangyan very likely uh, lived in the private home. Right, that that's where people, people spoke Fangyan with one another in the home. Um, not only did I sort of get this from just talking to people, right, but um, even sometimes this came up in official rhetoric of officials complaining about the fact that kids would go home and speak, um, 
and speak uh, Fangyan with their families rather than practicing Putonghua. Um, so from a 1973, one of these conferences, they raise as sort of a potential problem. And they, they say, we should be encouraging children to practice Putonghua in the home. Okay. Um, similarly, interviews I did with people who grew up during this period confirmed that in the classrooms that they grew up in, um, a lot of these pronouncements often went ignored. Um, sometimes teachers just found Putonghua too difficult to learn. Um, or maybe they'd enforce it in like Chinese language class, but not in say like science or math, right? Um, and finally, we should note that official rhetoric often presented the situation as though there was a very thick line between Putonghua on the one hand and Fangyan on the other. And that's just not how languages behave. Um, people might and did just learn, say, a, you know, a few conversational phrases in Putonghua or learn some Putonghua or learn it with like a thick accent or even sort of invent new amalgamations altogether that melded Fangyan with Putonghua. So while I was doing archival work, um, this project, I spent some time in Qingdao um, and, I, and I spent some time with a linguist there who explained to me that very few people speak what he called pure Qingdaohua or Qingdaoese. Um, and he said that sort of like from people who like live from the like 30s through the 50s were the people who spoke this pure Qingdaohua. But once you started to see the rollout of Putonghua promulgation programs in the 50s and 60s, people adapted to speaking what he called Qingpu, right? Or which is like Qingdaoeseified Putonghua or sometimes also called Puqing, which is like Putonghua-ified Qingdaohua. <laughs> so just these, these sort of like amalgamations, right? So in other words, this do revolution rhetoric was primarily rhetoric that did not seem to at least universally be matched entirely by action. But I don't think that makes the rhetoric unimportant. Rather, by imbuing language reform with the vocabulary and spirit of mass political movements, the connotations of linguistic choices shifted. Awarded an entire new set of significances, Fengyan were made antithetical to Putonghua and what it stood for, nation and revolution and loyalty to the party. By directly tying language choices to political loyalty, this rhetoric intentionally, or maybe unintentionally, politicized language speaking as it related to national identity. And that brings us to today. Um, so as I follow current events, I see the relevance of these narratives about Fangyan pop up everywhere, right? From stories about rappers in Sichuan um, to reports about rapidly changing Chinese media laws and censorship of apps, um, or even new directions in Chinese academia. Um, but to me, just to sort of wrap up this talk, one of the most poignant ways we can see the significance of the history I presented today is through protest movements that directly reference the importance of Fangyan to collective identity. And so um, just to sort of end, I want to take a quick glance at just two examples. Um, one comes from the city of Guangzhou in 2010, uh, where a protest gathered in response, by a, a response to a decision by the municipal government to increase television offerings in Putonghua, thereby um, potentially reducing its programming in Cantonese. In July of that year, protesters gathered in Guangzhou's People's Park, adorned in t-shirts proclaiming sing praises for Guangzhou, where they spontaneously broke into verses of um, canto pop songs um, from the Hong Kong group Beyond. This picture here shows a man at the protest, his sign reading, um, I love Cantonese, I don't speak stewed winter melon. So I want to draw attention to a couple elements of this sign. The first is the use of the term stewed winter melon, a sort of derogatory slang, or not derogatory, but slang for Putonghuac because it's homophonous in Cantonese. Um, the second, however, is that the heart of his I love Cantonese is in fact the flag of the People's Republic of China. So he's appealing to patriotism here. And I think appealing to patriotism in speaking Fangyan uh, reminds us of how in the early 20th century or since the early 20th century, Chinese-ness was believed to include this linguistic diversity. That because Fangyan had this connection to the past, that because they were authentic representations of what people actually spoke, diversity could be patriotic. 
This protester, in other words, took the political implications of language speaking and flipped the script, reclaiming Chinese identity for Cantonese. And to bring our talk full circle and return back to Hong Kong, the idea that Fangyan is a way to reclaim Chinese identity from a hegemonic homogenous standard is deeply relevant to current events in that city. Um, last year, a massive protest movement um, in opposition to an extradition bill between Hong Kong's special administrative region and, China and the People's Republic, um, uh, so this erupted in uh, June of 2019, right, which subsequently grew into this broader movement um, that spoke against the erosion of Hong Kong's economic, political, and cultural independence and in support of its unique identity apart from the mainland. Within this protest movement, Cantonese has become, as one professor put it, the language of protest. To get a sense of how important Cantonese to the spirit of the protest movement, there's a lot of examples I could bring in, but I wanted to show a series of images because I think that they capture it, um, that were widely circulated on Facebook, all of which, the point of which was to show how Hong Kong differs from the rest of China. So I wanna say these are memes, okay? So have that in your expectations that this is a meme, okay? Um, so the idea, is like here is that there's like a series of like 20, 25 images, all of which say Hong Kong is not China. Um, so some of the examples they give of how they're different are political, right? So this particular example here is meant to show um, that in um, the PRC, right, uh, it's difficult to talk publicly about uh, the June 4th uh, massacre at Tiananmen, in, in Tiananmen Square in 1989. So like six and four are censored. Obviously that's not what keyboards look like, but that's what they're referencing here. Whereas in Hong Kong, um, up until recently, right, that it was there's freedom of expression is protected. Um, but some of like the the images that they show here highlight cultural difference, including this one about language. Okay, so this has bad words on it. Um, so I'm just gonna censor those out. <laughs> um, so and instead sort of highlight what they say at the bottom here, um, which is Chinese speak Mandarin, uh, which has a four tone system in more than 100 years of history, whereas Hong Kong's Hong Kongers speak Cantonese, which has a nine tone system with 2000 years of history. To me, this image is striking in how it evokes the arguments made by Zhang Bingling over a century ago, which saw some Fangyan as more authentically connected to sort of ancient Chinese-ness, right, um, than others. The image here implies that Hong Kongers are seeking to not only carve out their own identity. They are seeking to sever the bonds between Putonghua and Chinese identity and reclaim Chinese collective identity from Beijing. And that ultimately is sort of the core of my book. By writing a history of Chinese nationalism centered on Fangyan, um, I argued that the standardized symbols of a homogenous identity, a national language, a national song, a national dish, often hold significance, but they're not the be all and end all of a national culture. Right? Rather, nationalism is defined by how different people understood, tethered themselves to, and excluded others from the nation. For some, that nation is, was, and must be homogenous. Um, others imagined it in heterogeneous, multitudinous expressions. The existence of these two narratives shows that Chinese nationalism neither forced nor required linguistic conformity, and indeed that nationalism thrived and still thrives in opposition to forces of homogenization. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Quite the, the whirlwind tour through a uh, hundred years there. Um, we've, we're already getting, uh, I think, some really great questions in, but I'm going to abuse my privilege uh, and ask the first one, uh, which, uh, which sort of takes us back to, I guess, the, the early decades of the Republic. Uh, and I was wondering to what extent do your interlocutors, sort of people like Zhao Yunren, uh, Lin Yutang, and so on, uh, what is their sense of the Romanization sort of debate? Uh, and, and I'm asking this with sort of uh, the question that's lurking in the back of my mind is really, uh, is there a sense that uh, there is a distinction between languages that are ideographic, that are character-based, and then languages that are phonetic? 
and that it presents, you know, because you have Romanization, you have an attempt to to uh, to also, uh, you know, the, sort of the precursors opinion in some ways simplify Pantiza uh, uh, and so on. So is there is there a recognition of uh, a certain kind of difference between phonetic and ideographic languages, and what role do they see Romanization possibly playing in the creation of the national language versus uh, the identification of Anyan? Um So that's a great question. Uh, ooh. Can I? Yeah. Okay. Um, I so um, I'll I'll stick with Zhao Yunren because I think that his example is sort of really fascinating. So all of these guys, um, they almost sort of all agreed that there needed to be some sort of phonetic system, primarily for teaching language, right? That that's how you needed to teach it. Um, so Zhao Yunren made these phonographs, but he's like they they had an accompanying textbook because he realized that there needed to be a way to render um to render sort of the phonology of of the of any sort of language right um and you'll notice that a lot of them use the international phonetic alphabet um in their surveys um as far as whether they should get rid of characters um like there was there was not a lot of agreement on that like some really sort of forcefully argued that and, and whereas others were just like these can be concurrent um but as far as sort of like um, what role Romanization had to play. Uh, so Zhao Yanren actually invented his own system mm -hmm. um, called Boyu Luomazu. And um, his idea here was that any system that, that rendered Chinese phonetically um, needed to be very precise um, and therefore needed to render tones. Um, and I, I am positive that I will spell it wrong if I try to do it off the top of my head. Um, but it in involves sort of adding extra letters like Y's and Z's and H's um, or double vowels, right, in order to get across different tones. Um, and so um, and his idea, so, so Zhao Yunren, when he thought about what language should be, he really saw it as like, you could engineer a scientifically ideal language that is perfect for, for teaching. Right. Um, and so when he was thinking about sort of what the national language should be, he's like, you, we should engineer a language that is the easiest for everyone to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and so and he thought of romanization systems in that way as well. Um, others created other ones. Right. Um, there was a big attention paid to the idea that um, one of the reasons that it needed to be Roman letters as opposed to others. Not everyone agreed on this, but a lot of them did, because that way um, it was easy to sort of like um, it was it was easier for uh, like people from Europe and the United States to learn Chinese, right? So there was that sense of it as well. Um, but um, as far as sort of like how how characters fit into this, right? I think a lot of them articulated um, arguments that were being made by um, by missionaries and such that that like Chinese characters were much harder to learn. Um, than, than a, like a phonological script. And so some of them were rather dismissive of characters, but others sort of said like getting rid of them altogether is kind of a nightmare. There was also a fear that getting rid of them, um, so like others argued that if we just got rid of them entirely and just use say, that we would end up losing fang yan, right? That, 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 that essentially they were incompatible with that and characters were phonetically flexible enough um, to accommodate all of these different diverse fang yan. Um, so there was an attention paid to that as well. Um, so I think that, that that is sort of how a lot of these guys were thinking about that. Great, thank you. So we have a whole host of questions now. Yay. I think in the interest of fairness, we'll just sort of go through them sequentially. But as you answer, I'll also try and see if we can find sort of ones that overlap so we can ask them together. Okay. Uh, but the first one is from Eric de Rollet. I hope I pronounced that name somewhat correctly. Uh, this may be a tangential question, but do you have a sense for the attitudes of Chinese diaspora communities, for example, in North America and Southeast Asia, 
towards the push for Putonghua in mainland China and Hong Kong? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and my, my, my sort of sense of this, it is a little bit outside of my research area, but um, it's something that sort of comes up a lot. And I'll give two examples that show that I think that these two narratives, I think, also exist among diasporic communities, right? So in, um, in, there are a lot of places where, like, sort of like um, Chinese overseas in, say, North America and such, that they, they never learned Putonghua, right? That they, they were sort of learning Cantonese and Fujianese was very, very common, right? And that these were sort of really significant to them, right? Um, and, um, and so there is sort of the, these efforts to kind of preserve these Fangyan um, outside and, and think, about, think about that as sort of a Chinese language. Um, on the other hand, um, I'll sort of bring up Singapore, uh, because in the 1980s, there was this push to speak Mandarin, right? Um, it was like a speak Mandarin campaign in the 1980s um, in Singapore that really emphasized that Chinese was, was Putonghua, right? That, that, was, that was, those were equivalent, right? And you even have rhetoric saying that like, it's the real Chinese, which is, which is sort of, um, I think echoing the same rhetoric that we get in mainland China, right? Um, as far as what they think about what's happening in Hong Kong and um, Hong Kong and sort of China, right? Um, I, I'll, I'll often hear sort of like I'm speaking anecdotally here, but I'll, I'll often hear both of these narratives, right? That like it makes sense for a country to have a national language, right? Um, whereas in particular, sort of the the emotional connection in Hong Kong towards Cantonese, um, right? Like um, I, I actually, I know a professor here who's from Hong Kong who right, very strongly feels about Cantonese that it is this, it is sort of this real historic uh, Chinese language. And so I, I think that we can see both of these narratives here, um, if that makes sense. I know that feels like kind of like a cop out, but those are the examples that I can mm -hmm. think of. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, no, that's great. Uh, I, I see a, a few questions that sort of are, that touch upon sort of the same set of issues. So maybe I'll just read them out together sure. and then you can, you can address them uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of repeating um, uh, sort of some of the content at least. So the, this, the first of those three is from an anonymous attendee who says, thank you very much for this enthralling discussion, Professor Tam. This is such an interesting and important topic. Uh, as a second year MA student from Johns Hopkins uh, size, I'm very interested in language policy, language minorities, and in particular, ethnic language minorities. It looks like we are seeing a resurgence in assimilationist policies targeted toward Chinese minority ethnic groups uh, today, presumably. For example, the recent policies in Inner Mongolia. Could you speak a little bit more about this? Thank you. So that's the you know, so linking it to nationalism and and sort of um, uh, assimilation. Then there's a, a related question from James Watson Cripps, who says, "Thank you for the great talk. It's been extremely interesting seeing the vicissitudes of language and the politics thereof." My question, how, however, is about the relationship between language and ethnicity, and by extension, identity. In your research, do you find any variance in how these language reforms were implemented among Han, which appears to be the main subject of your talk, and language reform education among minority groups? Uh, and how does this then relate to identity politics and, and hierarchies? Uh, and then the third one is, uh, I made a note of the names here, is uh, someone called Steve, Stephen Zhu. Uh, 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 Stephen Zhu, a graduate student at Duke. Uh, what is the influence of Mandarin promulgation on ethnic groups who seldom speak Chinese? So these are I can, uh, variations of, I think, a, a broader set of questions that have a lot in common. So maybe, yeah, you can feel free to, to take them whichever, you know, however you want to answer them. 
Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to take the second one first, and then and then sort of um, address the other two, um, and highlight that there is some absolutely excellent work being done on on in particular sort of language policies among ethnic minorities. Um, uh, Gerald Roche, who's um, in Australia, does a lot of stuff on Tibetan language policy. Um, sort of thinking off the top of my head, there was a great one that came out about Mongolian, whose name I'm just absolutely blanking on. I apologize, but um, but there's some great work being done for people who actually speak these other languages. Languages, um, which, which I don't, right? Um, so what is the relationship between sort of nation and ethnicity? It's, it's, it's a, what is such a great question. And um, one of the things I found is that a lot of the people, not exclusively, but there's a theme here of people who are arguing that like Fangyan are more historic, more pure, um, this sort of like Cantonese has 2000 years of history narratives often come as sort of reclaiming what is essentially a, like an, an like an ethnic purity image of what Chineseness is, right? Um, this idea that like they are, there's um, one of the things I heard a lot about is right. Cantonese is the language of the Tang poets, right? Whereas Northern languages um, had been uh, like adulterated or had been mixed with with Northern non-Han groups. So what I find is that a lot of these narratives, not all of them, right? But a lot of them um, of this idea of like Chineseness can be diverse were built upon the idea that there is still sort of like they are circumscribing an ethnic identity, right? That we need to celebrate the Han ethno-racial identity in its entirety, which includes all these Fangyan, but that in fact, right, that, that um, Fangyan are Han Chinese, right? Like that is the distinction here. Um, and I'll give one sort of fascinating example that happens in the 1920s um, and 30s is that so like in the early 1900s, um, there are these, these Native Place Association textbooks and, um, and, and local gazetteers, in particular in the, in the province of, 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 of Guangdong, um, that start calling Hakka, right, Kojia people, um, outsiders or outside Zhu, like outside um, ethnicities. And um, Hakka in particular overseas uh, really took like offense to this, right? That they are like, absolutely not. We are not an outside zoo. We are more Chinese than you guys are. And one of the, one of the sort of like this, this gets, you get this flurry of scholarship on the history of the Hakka, a lot of which is geared very strongly towards proving that Hakka are actually more Chinese because their Fangyan is more closely related um, to like the historic center of China. And they actually moved southward, right? Um, later than the local Cantonese, right? They moved in, in the narrative of sort of the Song Dynasty and the Ming Dynasty is when Hakka moved into the southern areas. And that when they moved down to these areas, they, um, they became uh, like that, like, so they carried that sort of historic heartland um, better than uh, the southerners. Sometimes you'll even get these kind of sort of ethno-nationalist narratives that like Cantonese and Fujinese have mixed with Vietnamese or mixed with um, like Dai and Thai and therefore are again not purely Chinese. So there is sort of like this ethnic purity narrative that comes here. Um, so what does that mean for ethnic minorities? Um, and again, I will say that for those who are interested, I really highly recommend that you, you um, read these other works by these other scholars because there's some really great stuff. But essentially, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing um, what, what I think that sort of the, we, what we see in common between uh, what's happening in um, among sort of Han groups who speak Fangyan and among uh, ethnic minorities is that what's common is that there's an assimilationist kind of narrative here, right? That Putonghua is the, is the Chinese language, right? And that that is what we learn to be a part of the Chinese nation, right? Um, but I find that um, the sort of idea of like how we think about what Fangyan are 
um, is, 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 I don't, there's, I think, a fear in policymaking among, in particular, Inner Mongolia is a really good example of this, Tibet, um, in Xinjiang, um, among sort of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that speaking, not speaking Chinese in some ways sort of like denotes uh, separatism, right? Or like a desire to not be a part of the Chinese nation, right? Um, whereas you get that a little bit in Hong Kong, like I'll see some of that rhetoric in Hong Kong about Cantonese that like your Chinese speak Putonghua, right? That's what that's sort of what's happening here. Um, but uh, with sort of ethnic minorities, you're seeing an enormous more amount of sort of like of like suppressing kind of ethnic culture. So they're tied with these other policies um, that doesn't really make sense when we're talking about say like Cantonese and such, right? Um, so I think that that is a sort of distinction there. Um, but yeah, these are great questions. Thanks. Yeah, no, we're getting we're getting great questions. I'm I'm trying my best to try and group them together so that uh, you know we. We can try and cover as much as much ground as possible. Absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna shift focus a little bit and uh, take two questions that that uh, sort of situate this uh, in a more international comparative context. So the first question is by Ariz Manella, who teaches uh, here in the history department uh, at Harvard, uh, who says, "A great talk. Uh, my question: Whether linguists and others debating these questions in the 20th century, making references or comparisons to other movements to create uh, national languages, and then he cites." France, Italy, and Germany as possible examples? Uh, and if so, uh, did they consider any of them as a model for the Chinese case? Uh, so that's Erez. And then there's someone uh, uh, called Panga uh, who says, do so many kinds of dialects exist in other countries? Can you explain how other countries treat dialects? So uh, related yes. question again. So. So I'll start with the first question. Um, absolutely, um, the, that they were sort of like making comparisons. Um, France comes up a lot, but the one that comes up by far the most is Japan. Um, and that is one of the things, so, um, you know, sort of the sake of time is trying to sort of streamline this narrative, but there were people in sort of the early 20th century and in the 1910s who were arguing that Beijing should be the national language. And the reason was that that's what Japan did. Japan chose the capital um, as their, um, as their sort of standard, as their standard language and China should do the same, right? Um, and the, even the idea of linguistic conferences, right? The idea of a conference coming together uh, to choose a national language uh, is, is something that that sort of like these like uh, academics are borrowing from right that, so they're thinking about that in a very similar way um, so that is um, I actually uh, when I gave a talk on this I, I had a really phenomenal conversation um, with with somebody who was like why are they looking at Japan Japan isn't like China that that's a weird comparison and I'm like I don't disagree with you but that's who they were citing right like that they were thinking about Japan and why Japan was different but um, in particular, sort of, um, I'll give a shout out to, to Jeff Wong, who um, wrote an art article specifically about how it's like this idea of creating a new language um, is not entirely unprecedented. Like these guys were really interested in Esperanto, um, which was sort of happening at the same time, um, or at least some of these guys were interested in Esperanto. So it's not entirely out of the norm of the idea of creating a new language, but it's pretty unique. Right, this idea of, of that you can sort of manufacture languages um, to best serve nation building goals. Whether that nation building goal is for Zhao Yunren, it was like, what is the most efficient way we can promulgate? Like, let's scientifically engineer a language to be very easily promulgatable to those who are like, we can engineer something that, that represents who we are as a people, right? Um, and so that is, that to me is sort of a really um, fascinating corollary. Um, do is there linguistic diversity like this in other countries? Um, yes, um, but I, I do sort of want to stress how um, 
how different <laughs> these fangyan are in China, right? Um, so dialects are often a misnomer. There are a lot of um, linguists and uh, linguistic anthropologists and, and sociologists who really don't like this translation, right, of fangyan to dialect, who argue that essentially it's just wrong. Um, in my book, I don't come down on that, um, simply because, not because I don't have an opinion about it, but because I see my work as a historian is rather than arguing what's the best translation for Fangyan, it's why are they calling them dialects in the first place? Like, why is that the term that they're using? So that's what I'm sort of interested in. Um, but um, there really is just an astounding amount of linguistic diversity here. Uh, one of the examples that, that I ended up reading a lot about and actually sort of one of the first readers of this manuscript um, focused on this was, um, was South Asia in India, right, where you also have um, sort of language policies, in particular colonial language policies, um, happening um, there where you have this amount of linguistic diversity. Um, what makes China, again, sort of unique, to go back to Arnab's first question, is the fact that um, even though we're talking about like oral linguistic diversity, right, Cantonese and Putonghua are really just not mutually intelligible with one another, um, they use the same script, right? And so there is, there is a unity there that is hard to sort of, I think, replicate um, in, in other, that don't have exact historical corollaries uh, elsewhere, so. I hope that helps. <laughs> but the, if you're interested, there's an enormous amount of really good work on, um, on language policy and this idea of vernacular and dialect and language um, in, in India, in colonial India, like in, in South Asia, uh, just really great work. Yeah. Great. I'm going to, again, another area which I think is more about regionalism. So we were international to look, look within China at regionalism. Yeah. I have a couple of questions that look kind of interesting from this perspective. Uh, so what Peter Carew asks, what role did economic power of various regions in China play in the debate over the national language pre-1948 was Shanghainese considered. Uh, then there is, let me see if I can find them quickly, Peter Lee. Peter Lee asks, Cantonese speakers are rightfully proud of their dialect and the cultural traditions of southern China and the legacy of earlier dynasties. Is this shared by other regions that have distinctive, that is distinct from Mandarin dialects or is Cantonese somewhat a special case even within, within Chinese history? Um, and then a similar question uh, from Elliot. Just a second, I'm scrolling, trying to find it. So Elliot, Elliot Chung. Uh, hi, Gina. Elliot here from Taipei National University of the Arts. So I presume you know him, uh, MA student. Uh, I'm in particular curious about how defense of Cantonese in both Guangzhou and Hong Kong interacts with regional pride identity in, in, in the Guangdong Lingnan area. Uh, Lingnan region vis-a-vis -vis connection to a national or cultural Chineseness. Uh, do we see similar or differing movements happening uh, where shared linguistic groups are divided by national borders? For example, Hokkien dialects between China, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. So there's a, there's a Tom World question here too, but maybe you can take these three and then we'll, we'll go to Tom's, Tom's question. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so uh, I'll start with sort of the economic question, um, which I think leads itself into talking about this. Um, and I'll start with sort of a, like, um, one of the things that I, 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 now that the sort of book is out, I, I, I like to sort of talk about things that, um, that I struggled with, right, in thinking about this. And one of the things that I struggled with in writing this book is that I really did want to write a history of how this category of Fangyan was imagined and evolved vis-a-vis um, -vis national identity. Um, and uh, because of a variety of reasons, which get to like the questions that are sort of highlighted here, uh, Cantonese is talked about just a lot, right? Um, when we're talking about sort of like um, all primary sources that deal with Fangyan, an enormous amount of it comes from 
um, Guangzhou, right? Um, and it comes from uh, Hong Kong and comes from these southern regions, right? Um, and um, one of the things that's sort of interesting here is that um, I spent a lot of time going through uh, gazetteers to see if people were talking about sort of Fang Yan and, and linguistic pride uh, before the 20th century. You get a little bit of it um, in Guangzhou, just a little bit of it, right, um, in talking about sort of the historic nature of their Fang Yan. Um, so to answer that question, is sort of Canton Cantonese unique? Um, yes, for that reason, um, I think the fact that uh, Cantonese speakers um, are sort of um, quite widely represented in the diaspora, also makes them unique. Um, and then there's sort of the fact to get at this question of economic power, right? There's the fact that like Hong Kong's economic power matters here. Um, so uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot, right, is like, what is the future of, of Fang Yan in China? And I spend a lot of time talking to linguists about this and they're like, like, like basically economic power really matters in terms of like, the kind of infrastructure you can create for the preservation of and importance of a Fangyan, right? Um, or importance of a language, of a dialect, or whatever we want to call it. Um, and I think Cantonese movies, Cantonese radio, Cantonese education, like all of these things, we have this infrastructure um, for Cantonese that is kind of unparalleled. Um, the ones that come closest, I would argue, are Taiwanese. Um, because of sort of movements towards that in Taiwan after the 1990s. Um, and and then um, another sort of example, Shanghainese has a little bit of this, right? Um, but it is harder to learn Shanghainese um, and than it is to learn Cantonese, right? There's just like, um, like I took Cantonese classes, right? And that's, that's I, I, it's a hard time finding Shanghainese classes. Um, and I took Cantonese classes at Stanford, right? So um, those exist outside um, of China. Uh, and so when we think about sort of like economic power, uh, one of the, the ways that I, I had trouble sort of getting around when I was doing this research, but I'm very cognizant of, is that I am making, I'm writing this story about Fang Yan with the cognizance of that there are certain groups that really have sort of more say in what this discourse is than others, right? Um, and that, the, that that is a story that I'm, I'm trying to tell, right? Is But I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that, that that's just sort of the case. Um, as far as um, who was considered for the national language, um, to get back to this conference, um, there were some people who were arguing for particular languages. Uh, the most common one was the language of Beijing. Others were arguing for this amalgamation, right? Um, and so the stories of this language often talks about camps, like there's southern camps and northern camps. Um, but there were a lot of people in southern camps who were arguing for the language of Beijing. And there were a lot of people in sort of like northern camps, like they come from northern provinces, who were arguing for this sort of like average of things, right? Um, there were certainly, there were always somebody who was saying like, my, my Fang Yan should be the national language, right? But as far as this conference goes, to me, the, sort of the major split was between pick the language of the capital or sort of like invent something that really includes and celebrates uh, what is special about Southern Fang Yan. Um, and finally, to get to um, Elia's question, and I'm, I'm so honored because it's so early in Taiwan right now, so I'm really honored. Um, but uh, when we think about sort of regional pride, this is, this is something else I thought a lot about, right, is that the slippage between national pride and regional pride um, sometimes becomes really fuzzy. So in the, in the epilogue of my book, I talk a little bit about a Shanghainese rapper who talks a lot about Fang Yan and what it means to him. And a lot of times it does really feel like regional pride. Right, like he's talking about how uh, like Shanghai food and the streets of Shanghai and preserving Shanghai, but it often sort of I think like 
first of all, I think that like regional pride will often extend to national pride. Because if we think about sort of like what I spend a lot of time you know, with my students in Texas talking about sort of what, what national pride, how they understand it, and what it means to them. And it really does sort of start um, with our personal experiences, right? And I think that uh, there is, I, to me, there's sort of a slippage there, right? That, that we very sort of slip easily in and out of these things. Um, as far as sort of uh, Cantonese in Hong Kong, right? Uh, this, is, this, is, this is really sort of, I mean, I struggled with how to sort of frame this because there is a real push, I think, for a unique, separate Hong Kong identity. Um, that is that is separate from both Chinese nationalism and sometimes even Chinese ethnic identity, right? Um, and so one of the things I found is that I think that there are a lot of narratives here, but a couple of pieces of protest art that really stuck out to me were um, were, were people from Hong Kong who were sort of trying to reclaim what were to me were very clear symbols of Chinese national history. Um, so one of my I think I have it. Let's see if I can I can show it really quickly. Um, Give me just a second. We'll see if I can find it. Um, it'll take me just a moment. Um, yeah, this is it. Okay, cool. Uh, let's see. Did that work? Can you see that? Yes. <laughs> so I love because this is like Sun Yat-sen, right? Who's the father of the Chinese national? Like he's the father of the Chinese nation, right? And here he is, in, decked out in protest garb, right? Um, and so, is this the only way that I think people are understanding, um, like, sort of like regional versus national identity in Hong Kong? No, I don't think so. Um, but to me, I see a lot of that. And and when I when I speak to people who are from um, Hong Kong and Guangzhou about sort of what Cantonese means to them, um, or I read it sort of in public discourse and articles on Twitter, right? There is a real emphasis that like, we're the real Chinese, right? Um, and um, like Mandarin's really new, it's manufactured, it's, it's connected to Northern non-Hong groups, all of these kinds of narratives, I think shows that there's something else, like regional pride is obviously happening, right? But I think that there's something else that goes beyond that as well. Great. So just to stay on this theme, because we have another question that you, you, you touched upon Taiwan already. So maybe we can talk about, well, before, before I take Tom's question, though, I thought I'd, I'd point out, you brought, you brought up the case of India. And I think it's interesting for if, if the person who asked it is still listening, uh, that uh, it's been actually extremely divisive as an issue in India. And it's seen actually a lot more violence than, than it has in China, with, um, uh, especially from, from states in, in southern India. Uh, but but the constitution, I think it's in the eighth, eighth schedule of the constitution, actually identifies 22 languages that have some kind of official slash national status. Uh, so there are different there have been different approaches to try and address linguistic diversity. Yeah. Uh, so Tom Tom has a, a linked question to, to the sort of this, this you know your your response right now to regionalism and regional pride. To more focused on Taiwan directly, he asks. Um, Tom Gold, this is. It may be beyond the scope of your project, but what about controversy over the use of Mandarin Goyu? in Taiwan versus Taiwanese, itself a variant of Mingnanhua, that some people also argue is much older than Mandarin. So I think this has cooled down in the recent years, but it was a central issue in the debate over a distinct Taiwanese identity in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yes, very much so. Um, and so it's so it's so fascinating. I actually, um, I, I'm, I'm working on like a separate little piece um, that looks at this particular narrative of like, what's the oldest Chinese language? And initially when I, when I wrote the first draft of this and I presented it, I said, um, I was focused on Cantonese. Like I wanted to just talk about Cantonese. And when I presented this, 
all these people in the audience are like, well, I'm from Suzhou and we say our language is the oldest language. Well, I'm from, you know, I speak uh, Fujianese and we say our language is the oldest language. So this, this idea of like sort of like trying to grasp onto this, 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 this connection to antiquity um, is a really fascinating one and it's common. Taiwan, um, so the, um, you're right that, that Taiwan was a little bit outside the scope of my project, but I, I do think that there is this sort of fascinating thing happening with Taiwanese in Taiwan, right, where it is, it is a way on the one hand to sort of claim independence, which I think is something that up until very recently was very rare in Hong Kong, right? Hong Kong was not, was not like, it wasn't very mainstream to argue that like Hong Kong is an independent entity, right? Um, whereas in Taiwan, that's a very different kind of question, right? Um, and so it's a way to sort of like, you know, like, like claim sort of the unique history of Taiwan that is separates it from China. Um, but, um, but at the same time, right, like I had a language teacher in Taiwan who sort of told me the same thing, right, that there are ancient cultural roots here that we can detect from the southern Fangyan that we cannot detect from northern Fangyan. Um, so I think that, that both of these narratives exist um, in, in Taiwan, right, that there's one of Taiwanese being this, this story of, of um, an entirely separate sort of political and cultural identity from mainland China, whereas Guoyu represents um, the Republic of China, um, which arguably, right, is like a, is, is a colonial power in Taiwan. Um, whereas um, you also, I think, have this connection to sort of like cultural Chineseness um, that you can see through, through the, the sort of like the, 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 um, the praise of, of Taiwanese as a language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, okay, shifting. We're sorry, we're really working you hard here, but there are so many great. No, questions. that's okay. So, I'm here for so, it. I love uh, it. So, so there's there's a, there's a whole set of questions surrounding education. So yeah. I hope we can. I'll read them out, and then and then you can you know take them as, as you will. Uh, so uh, the first one, let me see, is uh, so Natalie Bilyeu, who says, "Thank you so much, Dr. Tam. I am curious about whether you know about efforts of the PRC in Taiwan in perpetuating Putonghua in schools." How did language policy shift on there from the Kuomintang to the CCP? Or perhaps the better question is, how did it differ in China? Finally, do you see similar, pro similar protests of reclaiming Taiwanese like with Cantonese in Hong Kong? So that's the first one. It's linked to education, what's happening in the schools. There's a few more. Um, there is, um, sorry, I'm trying to scroll through and find them. Louise Wolf, who asks, to what extent do other languages, dialects, other than Putonghua exist as teaching languages at universities and colleges in the PRC? So a more factual question, but very relevant again. Then there's a question from um, uh, Joe Rohan, who says, hi, this is Rohan Joe, a graduate student from the University of Chicago. I have also done research relevant to the language reform. The unified language certainly promoted a unified socio-political identity. However, the language reform on the grassroots was carried out in the form of mass education, literacy campaigns in particular, which was an effort uh, going on since the establishment of the PRC. Uh, in the early periods of the 1950s, mass education programs were already promoting a unified ad identity. In this way, for the rural non-elites in the PRC, how did language reform reinforce this identity? So it's the linking language reform and mass education. And then there's one other question, uh, Kate Bryan. Kate, Kate Bryan, who says, my name is Kate Bryan. I'm an undergrad at UNC. My question regards educational programs on minority languages. You discussed campaigns of Putonghua as the national Chinese language with corresponding educational materials. Have you found campaigns for teaching of ethnic minority languages as an elective of sorts among Han majority communities? So again, different aspects of the teaching of, of standard languages. 
Yes. Okay. I'll try and go through these one by one. Um, so for Natalie, uh, so the, the shift um, in terms of sort of like um, from the KMT, from the ROC to the PRC, um, a lot of their policies were very similar um, in terms of sort of pre-1949 and post-1949. Um, I, I actually spent a lot of time uh, talking to this, um, to this linguist in Fujian, uh, who was in charge. Um, so he had sort of like learned um, the national language as a kid um, in, the in the 30s. Um, and then in the 50s, he was one of the people who sort of set up these, these really quick pop-up, like t learn, learn Putonghua in a few weeks for teachers, right? Like it was something that happened in the, in, in the 50s where um, elementary, in particular elementary school teachers, were expected to learn Putonghua really fast um, and then bring it to the classroom. Uh, and basically what he said is he's like, well, I learned the national language in part because of where I lived um, and as a kid and in part because of like, I went to a really good school, right? Um, and so to me, that's sort of emblematic of the idea that, that, that um, um, which also the question about mass education also gets at, right? Like is that the KMT had these grand ideas about national language promulgation, um, but like education itself was just less widespread um, than it was um, in, in the PRC where they really mobilized a lot to get sort of mass education movements on the ground. Um, the KMT also uh, towards the 30s um, started to be a little bit stricter on things like censorship, um, which was also true in Taiwan after 1949. Uh, so like in the 1930s, they tried to ban Cantonese movies and there was this big flurry of things and, and like it wasn't really successful. Um, a lot like there were some Cantonese filmmakers who protested in like sort of newspapers or like this is this is a poorly thought out ban. Others just didn't send their movies into the censorship board, right? Um, they just made Cantonese movies anyway. Um, and so there was like a real, and this is, you know, sort of a theme of, of, of pre-1949 KMT is they're dealing with a lot of stuff, right? And so there's, there's, there's sort of limited efficacy here um, in terms of that. Um, so that, that to me, um, I know a little bit less about like Mandarin or Goyu education in Taiwan after 1949. Um, my vague understanding of it is that there were just harsher punishments for, for not speaking Goyu than there were in mainland China, where again, like there's this rhetoric of, of revolutionary politics, but they made a big deal about the fact that they weren't punishing people for speaking Fangyan. Um, and it was, it was, um, Right. It was difficult to enforce this stuff, right? Um, and so I think that's sort of a, a difference there too. Um, look, look at my notes here. Um, other languages um, and teaching languages in the PRC. So my understanding, um, and, and again, I sort of defer to, to people who have written really extensively about this, but there are like Tibetan language learning materials. Um, there are Mongolian language learning materials. Um, oftentimes, my understanding is that after it's either after primary school or after secondary school, these languages become electives um, for, for, for people who live in those provinces, right? So Mongolian and, um, and uh, Uyghur and Tibetan become electives. Um, I'm fairly certain that's true in Xinjiang. I know a little bit less off the top of my head about Mongolian. So these infrastructures do exist, right? Um, I, uh, one of the things that I think is really fascinating, right, is that the idea of like, what is Tibetan, we have a similar question of sort of like, what is Chinese, because there are a lot of Tibetan languages, right, um, that are widely diverse, right, and so there is like one Tibetan language that is often upheld as the Tibetan language when that's not necessarily what everybody speaks, right, but if you were to sort of take it as an elective, um, or learn it um, early on in school, that, that is, that is, um, 
likely what you would learn is this one Tibetan language, right? Um, there's also, we have to sort of note here that even if these exist, that doesn't mean that there is um, support or a lack of pressure um, when it comes to sort of learning these, these, these languages, right? Um, and so um, there's a lot of economic incentive to not, right, um, continue to study these languages, right? Um, and there's a lot of political pressure as well. Um, so um, I love the question about mass education and literacy campaigns. Um, so this is really fascinating. And um, since since the, the question asker said that this is this is something that they are themselves researching, I'll sort of add on to what I think is really fascinating, which is to get back to my question of sort of rhetoric versus reality. Um, and I'll give one particular example. Um, so this has less to do with with education than it does with mass movements, but I think it sort of relates here, um, which is that um, so I, I spoke. Um, with a professor that I, I used to have who um, was a sent down youth uh, during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and like the official documents that I have in front of me are basically like teach Putonghua, speak Putonghua, right? It's the language of the nation. That's what we do. Um, but that like local cadres told him basically like learn the local Fangyan. Like you're here to learn from the peasants. You need to learn the local Fangyan, right? Um, and it's similarly with sort of like revolutionary uh, plays, right? That's one of the places where we get a lot of conflict because they're like, look, is our goal to teach them Putonghua or is our goal to teach them revolutionary content? And if our goal is content, we need to put it in a language that they understand, right? And so you often see sometimes that pops up in official official documents right and like sort of like like the stuff I get in the archives but oftentimes this just kind of goes under the radar um, and so to get at the idea of sort of like mass literacy campaigns uh, my understanding is that like from the from the sort of research that I've done the emphasis there was on literacy that was the primary goal right um, as far as sort of like perfecting Putonghua pronunciation um, there are people, there are actors who are really emphasizing this, but I'm not sure that was necessarily the goal on the ground. Um, so I think I, that was, I think, was what the question was sort of emphasizing, and, and I agree with you. I think that that's absolutely correct, um, and that there's a lot more interesting stuff to be done about how um, an emphasis on pronunciation intersects with or conflicts with this emphasis on literacy, right, um, which I think that there are a lot of like people, both before and after 1949, that care a lot more about that than they care about a unified national language. Um, so absolutely true. Um, I have educational programs for minority languages. I think I got, did I? I think still I touched upon it, yeah. Let's, okay. uh, so maybe we can go for another five minutes, is that okay? I, I, Perfect, okay. yeah. So maybe we'll do two rounds, two more rounds. Uh, okay. and, and so the, the first round is a couple of questions that really uh, are slightly on the normative plane. And I think they're quite interesting because they are, they're really sort of big questions that are kind of universal. So uh, the first is from Sakura Christmas at, at Bowdoin College, who says, thank you, Gina, for this rich and fascinating talk on the role of Fangyan in the making of the modern nation state and nationalism. Would you be able to speak more to the relationship between Fangyan and the formation of the Han ethno-racial group in the 20th century? and disaggregate race and ethnicity from the nation state. So I guess that's the big sort of normative kind of slash um, sort of conceptual question. And linked to that is uh, the question from, where am I not now? Sun Ife. Uh, Sun Ife says, uh, what are the differences between, oh, no, not that one. There's a difference, there's two questions. So, um, so, so uh, Ife Sun from Cal State University, Northridge. Thanks, Gina. My question for you from the perspective of a scholar, should a country national government require a standard language? So this is again, you know, a big sort of normative question in some ways. So over to you, yeah. Okay, um, so I'll start with um, Sakura's question. Thank you very much. Um, so 
in sort of um, so returning back to, to sort of a, a topic that I, I touched on, right, is the idea that um, when I was thinking about, I, and I tied myself in knots kind of writing this, right, um, of like, how do I explain this relationship between um, language and nation and ethnicity, when oftentimes in Chinese, these terms are often sort of conflated, right? So like sometimes you'll get Han Yu Fang Yan, right? Which gets the word Han in there. Sometimes you'll get Zhong Guo Fang Yan, right? Which gets the, the like, like the, 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 the political state of China as opposed to the ethnicity Chinese, both of which are Chinese and English, right? Um, and then when we think of what the Han are, right? Um, is ethnicity the right term? Is uh, race the right term? What is the difference between the two? Um, and how do they relate to language? Um, and this is, this is something that I, I really, you know, sort of care very deeply about. And where I sort of came down on um, is, is first the idea that um, Fang Yan are often used to, um, people who promote Fang Yan as being sort of really important, right, um, are often using the, 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 the topic of diversity to, um, to really sort of also exclude, right? That like Fang Yan, we're all connected to this Han ethno-racial group. We're all connected to this one core root. Um, and therefore, right, so like essentially sort of like Fang Yan is used to exclude as much as it is used to include, right? Um, whereas ideally sort of like, like in, in theory, a national language doesn't have to be linked to history or race or ethnicity, right? Um, the second question here is like, do I sort of like, how do we think of Han as a, like, do we think of it as ethnicity or a race um, or either, right? Is it, is it something else entirely, right? And so on the one hand, um, the Chinese government calls the Han a, a minzu, which we often will translate as either, it can be ethnicity, it can also be nationality if we get into sort of like Stalinist rhetoric as well. Um, but um, the thing is, is that what is, what's sort of fascinating about the Han is that um, the normal things we think of as, as sort of belonging to an ethnicity, right, of like a common culture, language, geography, and these kinds of things, like it just kind of falls apart when we think of the Han because there's just so much diversity, right, in this, in this sort of big, broader group. Um, and as far as, and that's why I think one of the ways that I think we should continue to sort of study the relationship between um, language and Hanness, right, um, which I think should, like, I hope studies go beyond my book on this, right, um, is, is essentially looking at how the Han become, I think, racialized, right, which is, to me, the, the way I think about this, right, is rather than sticking to this very narrow idea of race as being sort of a, a biological construct, right, um, even though there are Parts of that, that this is true, right? That there are descendants, right? Descendants of the Yellow Emperor is often how a term that we get here for uh, thinking about the um, like sort of like Fang Yan, right? Like like people who descendants of the Yellow Emperor speak Han Yu Fang Yan, right? Um, so that is some of the rhetoric that we get here that is racialized. But essentially, if we think of racialization as being sort of essentialized and being embodied, right? Then I think that it's worth talking about how rhetoric about the Han that basically like this idea of a shared cultural core of, of like um, really does get at this kind of like racialization of Hanness um, and sort of drawing on other kinds of like, like, like um, scholarship on race and ethnicity outside the United States that I think is really valuable for thinking about that. Um, should a country require standard language? Um, you know, I try so hard as a historian to not come down on these kinds of questions. Um, I, to me, the way that I come down on this is that languages are such an integral part of who we are, right? Um, and that I do not 
I think it is possible to have a national language without um, sort of like, demean like demeaning or sort of like making less important other languages, right? Um, and that um, even if we are to sort of have a standard national language that, that we should be celebrating sort of like linguistic diversity and survival. And if sort of I may, one of the, one of the things that sort of like um, I worry about as a human being, right, as, as opposed to sort of a scholar trying to narrate this is that if we devalue people's languages, we devalue who they are. And I, I don't think that the, in, like, the creation of a national language or saying like this is like this is the Chinese language abroad has to come at the expense of other languages, right? And I, I worry sometimes about policies that emphasize, um, you know, we can only use Fangyan in these spaces, right? Um, Fangyan are just variants um, that 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 has the propensity to really devalue who people are. Um, and so I think if I have any sort of like um, like moral drive in this project. It's, 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 it's celebrating the fact that, that um, who we are is, is, is like understanding who we are and being able to express who we are is, is a really, really, it's like a fundamentally important human thing. Um, and that um, I worry about less about, do we have a national language? Do we not have a national language, right? Then um, what does that policy look like and how does it like allow for that kind of um, expression of selfhood? Makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was, that was, that was compelling. Um, okay, so we have a mixed bag uh, at the okay. end, if, you know. <laughs> so I've, I've been trying to be trying to find thematic connections, but but these are great questions, but they don't not necessarily okay. sort of speak directly to each other. Uh, the first of these is from Alan Baumler okay. um, uh, at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, who says, uh, "How much influence does Soviet language policy have after 1949?" I think you briefly touched upon sort of Stalin's idea of, of, of uh, nationalities already. Uh, and then he adds, great talk, by the way. Uh, then the other question is from Serena Calsagno. Again, apologies if I pronounce the right name incorrectly, a grad student at the University of San Francisco. Uh, thanks for your eager engagement and for clearly laying out this talk with fun examples. I'm curious about your thoughts on how this positioning of Putonghua Cantonese in China post greatly to today filters into the US imagination and especially US bilingual education. So that's really connecting it to the US in an interesting way. What does it mean that even though Southern Chinese languages are seen as important in US and California history specifically, and both are considered critical languages, Mandarin has grown as the main dual language Chinese language in the US now, it's become sort of the, so that's, uh, and then, then there's one a question from Paul McGregor, who says, why did Northern dialect become dominant, not Northern Mandarin or Southern Mandarin? So okay. and then, that's it. Then we'll we we'll give you a break. There's there's one 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 question, but I'm gonna again take, use my privilege. It came in late, so I'll do that later on. But uh, but so, oh yeah. You have to find now. Yeah. Okay, mixed bag. I'm excited. All right. Um, I will admit that um, I know a little less about the US context, but I'll do my very best. Um, I know a lot more about Soviet language policy. Um, and in fact, there's like a whole chapter on it in my book, right? Um, and so essentially what happens to see how like sort of like I can do this in a, in a very sort of, um, so what I'm looking for, um, condensed way, um, is that uh, in 1951, Stalin writes this pamphlet about Marxism and the problems of linguistics, right, where he basically argues that um, Marxism imagines this, um, this uh, 
essentially this like like progression of history right from like feudalism to cap capitalism to socialism to communism right um and that the way that languages but that languages are not part of the structure or the superstructure um rather they are sort of they they sit apart from that and are connected to nations so this is stalin's like desire to basically like um exhume the nation and make it a really important part of of sort of socialist communist marxist theory um rather than solely seeing things through sort of like class, right? Um, and so this gets translated into Chinese and, and um, has like a flurry of scholars, scholars at the Chinese Academy of Sciences who are trying to make sense of this in a Chinese context, right? And Stalin says very clearly that like languages represent, nations are represented by languages. So languages represent nations. Those two are twinned, right? And nations are the only sort of like unit that can progress and move forward into these sort of stages, right? Whereas, um, um, dialects are just variants and they are like doomed to stagnation basically is how they're going to fall away. They're going to disappear. Um, and you get sort of like essentially Chinese scholars dealing with this, right? Um, and Soviet scholars who then get translated into Chinese um, dealing with this. And so while you have on the one hand, this rhetoric um, in the early 1950s of people saying like, the promulgation of Putonghua is not meant to be at Fangyan's expense, right? That, that, that that's a big part of what's happening. You have scholars who are arguing like, eh, like according to Stalinist theory, Fangyan, which are dialects, right, are going to fade away anyway, right? That these are, these are going to die anyway. That this is something that's going to happen. Um, and so, and this sort of like, and like one particular scholar basically says like, we can make this happen faster or we can just let it happen naturally, but we can't stop it. Right? There's nothing we can do to stop it. Um, and so that, that sort of frames, I think, the way that people are thinking, particular scholars of the PRC are thinking about um, this hierarchy between Putonghua and Fangyan, right? Like, I think it really frames it, um, which is sort of important. So what US bilingual education, what does it mean that they are important in the United States, um, whereas you sort of see Mandarin coming in? And I, I think that sort of you, you hit on the extent of my knowledge here, which is that, um, you know, for a long time um, in um, Chinese overseas history, you have um, these Southern languages, these Southern um, Fangyan, right, being, um, uh, being upheld um, as, um, as uh, or not being upheld, sorry, um, being widely spoken, right, among overseas Chinese in the United States. Um, I, there are a lot of reports in places like California um, and New York where you have like Chinese language centers for, for children who want to learn Chinese. Um, being like Cantonese being replaced by Mandarin um, and being replaced by Putonghua. Um, and that there's, 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 I think there's some pushback against this among overseas Chinese communities. Um, but I think it sort of relates more broadly, which is outside my area of expertise, but I hope to get to in my next project, which is right, the rise of sort of like overseas nationalism um, among sort of overseas Chinese communities in the United States, right? That's not universal. I don't want to sort of paint uh, overseas Chinese with a broad brush in terms of how sort of we're thinking about uh, their relationship to um, Chinese nationalism, right? But I do, sometimes I do see rhetoric like that, right? Um, from Chinese in the United States where it's like, you know, um, it's tied to this idea of patriotism. Um, that's about all I know about that. Um, but I think it's a fascinating question and I wish I could sort of speak more on it. Um, why Northern dialect instead of Northern Mandarin? Great question. So essentially what they, they did, um, so I, I tried to really interrogate this of sort of like the difference between um, Beijing pronunciation, a standard pronunciation, 
northern dialect as base dialect, and um, and then um, modern vernacular literature as 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 vocabulary and grammar. Um, and the best I could sort of come up with for what they meant by that, right, is that not only do southern like not only do sort of southern Fangyan have um, have um, like basically I think it's sort of like an average of these northern Fangyan that in particular don't carry particular characteristics. There is a northern southern divide linguistically um, in terms of the southern Fangyan. Um, basically the word is like distinctions, like they have more distinctions among characters um, than northern ones do. Uh, so for instance like characters that in um, in Putonghua, I would be just, I'll pronounce sure. Um, in Cantonese, you'd have like sik and shi and like a bunch of different sort of distinctions, right? Um, and so like classes of phonologies, right? And so I think that that's what that is getting at as opposed to Beijing Mandarin, right? And, and the, the when sort of explanations of where that definition of Putonghua comes from is they're trying to say like, this is not just another Fangyan, right? This is, we're not, Beijing Fangyan is its own thing. Um, in fact, I have a picture of like, uh, from the Beijing subway from like 2009, where it's like learn Beijing Fangyan. It's it's like it's its own thing, right? It's different from Putonghua, um, and and the the rhetoric that you get here is that um, Putonghua is goes beyond being just Beijing Fangyan or Beijing Mandarin um, because it absorbs the best of all of the other Fangyan, um, and that's always left rather vague. <laughs> but that's the explanation: is that it is more than just Beijing Fangyan. Um, it includes sort of the phonetic rules that are similar to, so like, I think basically like if there's a, if there's a question of like, how, what is the distinction between these characters will go with sort of like, what are the rules for most Beijing Fangyan? Um, and therefore absorbing the best of all of, of all of Chinese Fangyan, which is, which is some real sort of fascinating turn of phrase, I think. Okay. Great. So in some <laughs> ways you, you, uh, you touched upon the one question that we couldn't ask. It's actually from Wen Sun, which is about connecting this book and this project to your future research, and you kind of alluded to that already, but uh, but we'll 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 let you rest. I Wayne, think. we can talk about it. We'll yeah. talk about it at length. <laughs> so 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 again, thank you so much. This has been been really fantastic, and you you can see by the by the the, the range of questions you got, how you know how exciting and and how into it people were. Uh, so yeah, thank you again, and I hope everyone who's with us still still over sixty almost sixty people still yeah. will join me in thanking you for a great talk and a great Q and A. Thank you so much. The, those questions were so much fun. Thank you so much for spending this afternoon talking about my research with me. This is delightful. And thank you, Arnab, for arranging. Yeah, of course, my pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening if you're on the East Coast or wherever you are. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you.